Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived in harmony. But everything changed when the Dungeons and Gatherers podcast was released. Welcome back to the Dungeons and Gatherers podcast. It feels like it's been so long. To the what now? Who are you? I don't remember. You're not my grandson. You know, it's funny, Aaron, <laughs> that we just went back to the same bit that we started our relationship with, I think, in Alaska, where it was just Aww. constantly like, who are you? You're not my grandson. <laughs> you are not my grandson. It's funny because um, I'm living in that same house again right now. That's right. I'm tuning in from the frozen north of Skagway, Alaska. Yes. And it's uh, cold. Yeah, we're we're currently trying to see if we can record from Alaska to the East Coast right now. We said we might take a break, but you know what? We're going to give it a go. We're going to see if we could make these podcasts still work because we miss it. And the best part is if this uh, doesn't work out, no one will ever know. Exactly. Lost. <laughs> Lost like a like a boy <laughs> in an iceberg. For a hundred years, wow. and then someone will I'm not sure it. if you all could tell or not, um, but today we're talking about Avatar The Last Airbender, specifically the new um, role-playing game, Avatar Legends. People want to do Avatar in D&D, and it's all over. People created modules and everything. Uh, the Way of the Four Elements Monk exists. Our friend Eli from the pod was running a... Uh, Fire Nation viewpoint campaign for a while, but now we finally have the beginnings of a rule book to play the Avatar Legends branded role-playing game. And it is a whole different system than we're used to seeing in our usual Dungeons & Dragons tabletop community. They're using a whole different kind of dice mechanics, and the character sheets look incredibly different. The stats are different. No more D20s. No more. We just use 2D6 now. Exactly. We got the Powered by the Apocalypse dice system that is running this game. So similar RPGs, 7C, things like that, which I'm very excited for personally because it means that it's a little more roleplay heavy rather than, as we talk about with D&D, that has a very heavy combat hit to it. Definitely. It is um, a very different... When I was reading through the materials, I was interested to see how they were going to handle bending. And they have like a whole blurb that's like, I'm sure you're wondering where all the bending talk is. And they're like, honestly, that's sort of not the point of this game. Yes. Like bending is like the medium with which your character like interacts with the world. And it's just sort of understood that they can do that. And that when they fight, you know, they you can you have complete control over the flavor and the moves that you do. So that's just sort of like a given. And then from there, everything else is just um, story. Which, great choice on their part, because like, how can you dictate every earthbending move? Because then it starts to sound like spell casting. It's like, okay, I'm doing the move rock spell, or now I'm doing the create an earthquake spell. Like this really, and again, because this is more of like a role-playing thing rather than like specifically like bending in combat, it makes it so open, and I think it was the smartest choice to do for something as open as, like, bending an element. Definitely. I think bending is such a flexible thing that every character that we've seen in, like, the Avatar world uses bending in their own unique and specific way that it would be almost impossible to have, like, a whole list of moves and maneuvers that are, like, 
This is everything you can do with your bending. Definitely. And I think it's cool with fighting style. Like, you know, the elements, there's one specific thing that you do uh, more so when you fight. Like, Mako, he punches with his fire fist. And, you know, Katara is such a water whip kind of person. So everyone's got their flavor, but they still do more than Mm -hmm. just punch people. Right. And when I was reading through, I was, like, looking for a list of fighting styles to choose from. And there is none. Like, you you make yeah. it up yourself. I was blown away that, like, I was like, okay, cool. Then I'll do water. Wait, what are the... Oh, I could do water whatever. I could be whatever kind of bender mm-hmm. I want. I love it. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. So, the first thing that I want to talk about is I like how the EXP system works here. And I like the idea that it's called the growth mechanic. And at the end of every session, it's not about, like the enemies you defeat it's it's, you ask yourself questions at the end of each session like did you improve the lives of a community of average citizens or help an ordinary person with their problems and if you do things like that then you gain new moves or you can uh raise stats or things like that and i think it's a really cool way of leveling in this game it sort of reminds me of milestone leveling in the way that it's not solely about the enemies that you defeat but also about the things that you accomplish and especially the like, the growth that your character goes through, right? Like, clearly we use the word growth here for a reason, because it's, like, in the rules. It makes me feel better, because sometimes in D&D, um, I've had a couple sessions, you know, that are just roleplay. You know, they're just, like, or they're just exploration, or, like, they're travel days, but they don't have combat, you know? And, like, if your character... There's an excellent example that um, Brennan Lee Mulligan, who's the main DM for Dimension 20 was talking about on one of his YouTube videos slash podcasts that was like, you have to grant XP for things that aren't just combat. Otherwise, like whenever you go to wizard school, the teachers will be like, all right, everybody close your books. We're going to go kill goblins because that's the only way you're going to become a better wizard, right? When wizards are supposed to be like studying the arcane. And to be completely fair too, I fall into the trap of it as well as a DM where like after a big battle, I'm like, okay, here's the level up. And it never hits mm-hmm. me where it's like, oh, wow, what a great RP session. I think this is the moment that we level up. And that's it just never hit me that way. And especially for a show like Avatar, where, spoiler alert, it's not always about defeating the bad guy. There's so much personal growth and turmoil within these characters that they pass not by slaying their foes, but by growing personally. Because it's like also such a spiritual journey that these characters go on, the more that they become enlightened... And, like, start to, like, understand themselves as a person. Because it's also, like, they're children, right, in the show. Yes. So it's sort of like a coming-of-age thing, too. So not only are they growing up and growing into, like, mature, like, more adult-type people and understanding their responsibilities, but as they do that, their powers also increase. And also, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in this book, they also recommend that you play your characters as the avatar age whether it's uh Korra right or the kiyoshi books or ang's gang like do it within that age so you have that same feeling of the mm-hmm. coming of age story right. which i think is super cool and will pivot nicely into the thing i wanted to talk about you can outline your campaign as a group in the beginning yes they talk about making sure like that when you sit down and they're like well, sometimes it's called session zero to talk about like what era do you guys want to play in You know, like, what kind of thing do you want to do? You know, you can, like, they have this whole breakdown that's like, what's the inciting incident? What's our goal? What do we want to do? And I think that that's awesome. That's, like, every player has, like, just a big hand in what kind of campaign are we running? Which I think is something that you don't always see in Dungeons & Dragons. Um, You can sometimes, and I've had DMs before that are like, 
what kind of campaign are we looking for? But then, like, they'll still make a story, right? Because that's sort of what you expect out of, of D&D. It, yeah, and also I think yeah. it's cool because usually, like, games like D&D don't like this, but if you ever come to me with, like, a, hey, maybe something like this can start to happen, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, we could, like, write that in. Like, this this game mechanic for Avatar Legends is more in the vein of, like, this is the true collaborative storytelling of Mm -hmm. the writing of what it actually is looks like this system it's like collaborative storytelling is baked into it as opposed to it's sort of like a special sauce you can add into a D&D campaign oh I I like a special sauce is is it cabbage sauce by any chance hard to say but we do love the cabbage man just don't take his cabbages (laughs) I'll do whatever I want my cabbages I really hope like there's like a a cabbage man uh, one shot somebody writes within this system at some point (laughs) oh there has to be absolutely I will play a cabbage salesman I don't know if you uh, saw on the the um the Kickstarter. I love how they're like. By the way, if you put this much as a Kickstarter thing, uh, one of the goals is here's a bunch of NPCs that we've wrote for your favorite characters in the world. So like your Zuko oh, stat cool. block. So they have all the characters from the different eras that you would maybe want to play with. They've already written them out, which is really awesome. That's really cool. No, I didn't see that. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm really, oh, God, I'm so excited, Aaron. I'm trying to hold it all in. I just love Avatar so much. <laughs> I know it's, it's very cool. It's very exciting. So that's, don't hold it in Josh. Okay. What are you most excited about? So we're talking about the, the growth of these characters and the collaborative storytelling of it. I just want to talk about like personal character things with the balance system that's in this game. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking right now at the successor character sheet because this is the very uh, Zuko character line where the balance bar is between progress and tradition. To explain what balance is before I dive too far into it, is that depending on the... Or actually, should we just talk about some character stuff first? Because I think uh, it's interesting that this mechanic depends solely on the character you choose. Yes. Uh, this is um, something that I'm not sure I love, but I think is very interesting, and I'm excited to see how it plays out. So let's talk about the, the six sort of archetypes you can be. These are sort of like whatever is most akin to like a class. Exactly. And also when I was reading it for the first time, I was confused because the trainings, as they call them, are water, fire, earth, air, weapons, and technology. So at first I was like, oh, those are the classes, depending on what you want with that is the class. But no, it is more what your character's personal journey is, is the class. So mm-hmm. the way they, they divided it up is the bold, the guardian, the hammer, the icon, the idealist, and the successor. And depending on which one of these you choose, you have different moves you're open to, different backgrounds, different demeanors, but there's a system called the balance system, and here it's all coming back around right now. So mm-hmm. basically each of these characters have two different ideals on two separate ends, and I love how they display it with the koi fish swimming you have a oh, twin law it's it's perfect so for the successor let's say that you have two ideals you have progress and tradition and if we're using zuko as our, his our example he's he wants his honor but later on he learns that you know his fire nation family is not the way and he wants to move towards the other side of that and i think what's cool is throughout the game uh, depending on certain circumstances that happen and certain mechanical things, you may shift from a center balance between the two to one way towards progress or one way towards tradition. And depending on that, your roles will either 
benefit from that or not benefit depending on the direction that right. you go yeah and they have a cool thing called a moment of balance that i think you can do like once a session or so that whenever you are at your center wherever that is it's not always zero sometimes it's like more towards progress yeah. or more towards tradition um you can basically like you get different um effects based on your character but it's like there's one that's like you can defeat an insurmountable foe using a moment of balance yes so you have all these like super high level like pull out your ultimate move you know avatar state style moment of balance Yes, which also, compared to other role-playing games, I love how that's a thing mechanically rather than, I hate to pick on D&D again, but like if you do a really awesome move, it doesn't Fuck mean em. it's the final blow. It just means it's like, right. all right, you did your super awesome cinematic move. The opponent still has 150 HP, so let's keep going. Right, exactly. Because we, we also don't use HP anymore no. um, in Avatar Legends. We do not. Now we've got fatigue points and conditions. Yes, yeah, basically every character has five fatigue points and um, that's just like one of your resources that let's say you're in a fight and you are bested or there's like a certain maneuver that your opponent does to you will grant you fatigue. And if you go the whole way to five, I think, yes, then you like pass out and you're absolutely out of the fight. Similarly, you can counterbalance that. There are some that either say like take a condition or take a point of fatigue Right, so you either physically exert yourself or you emotionally exert yourself. Hmm. And these conditions are afraid, angry, foolish, guilty, and insecure. Now, some moves will specifically give you one of these conditions, but I like that it shows this. It's like not it's not just your physical stamina, but also your emotional. Right. So, like, if you go to do a really cool bending move and you absolutely flub it, you know, like. Maybe the game master will say, I need you to mark down the foolish condition because you think you look really stupid, you know? And then if you're feeling foolish, you take a minus two to any trick and resist shifting your balance checks you have to make. So I like that as you get, like, fatigued and as you get um, these conditions put on you, you actually start doing worse, right? And then there's certain actions you can take to undo those, but then... Till then, you're like underperforming as opposed to the the D&D conundrum, which is a, just a little bit different, right? That like someone is just as potent at one HP as they are at 100. So I think it's cool. It's just another way that like the tides of battle can really shift depending on whether or not people are barely holding on or if they're, you know, if it's like they're clearly dominating. You know what? It made me think about uh, Betrayal at Baldur's Gate a little bit when we played it and how... If any of your four attributes, uh, the the strength, speed, intelligence, or sanity go down... You die, yeah. And it makes it really cool because, you know, it isn't just like, oh, you screwed up a bending move, you hurt now. Like, you, you, you sprained your wrist or something. There actually is other ways to damage one's soul because if we're talking about a personal internal growth, it's great that there are mechanics set in place where it's like, oh, you screwed up, you're insecure now. And then you mm-hmm. have to grow past that and figure out and i think they say uh other player characters can comfort and support this is just such a friendly sweet game and i love it so much it it makes me feel warm inside it's really cool it definitely feels like you're sitting around the table with your friends like like they say this too in the in the playtest materials like it's sort of like playing pretend like when you were a kid yeah like even more so than than i'm used to like as a as a tabletop player because it's very much like, what do you do? Like, you know, let's just 
like talk you're literally just talking it all out and imagining what your characters are doing because there aren't many like preset moves given out to you i had a couple friends who showed me uh, the 2D6 system uh, Powered by the Apocalypse from 7C, and I was listening to their podcast, I'll shout it out, Bits Before Crits, and I found it so cool how open they were in combat when they talked about it. Like, it would just be something like, all right, I'm going to spend this many dice, and I'm going to slash my sword in this direction, and blah, blah, blah will happen. And I was like, wow, that's not like a move that's descriptive, but dang, it really is like, I can do whatever my imagination says, and we roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes you feel a lot more fulfilled to be like, I drag my dagger across his throat, you know, and you can get some more, you like, you get more bang for your buck out of doing that in a system like this than you do when they're like, all right, um, roll your d4 for damage, you know, or even like, even if you call it a crit, right? Like a dagger across the throat should kill somebody. Yeah. Like regardless. Totally. They should die. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. I love the idea of like, I'm an assassin and I sneak up and I attack them. And I killed them. It's like, no, no, no. They still have like 300 HP left. But mm-hmm. you, you tried. You, tr- you tried, right, all right. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> you did a good, you did a good try. Yeah. You know, or you pull off this masterful sneak attack and you miss. Yes, you know? exactly. Which I know can happen in any game, but it's just always sad. Yeah. Well, sneak attacking is kind of like pulling a trick on someone. And I just wanted to talk about like the rolling with the basic moves that they have out here. Like, there's a couple Mm -hmm. different... Basically, a dice roll is triggered if a condition is uh, met. Like, you're going to plead with a character, intimidate, trick, rely on your skills, push your luck, assess the situation, or comfort and support. So basically, there's certain things that you kind of push yourself into to be like, all right, there's where the dice roll comes in. And I was particularly looking at trick, because what I love is that if it's below a 6 or below, you fail completely. If it's a 7 and 9... It's good, but, you know, there's a little bit of, like, uh, uh, something might not go exactly your way, and then 10-plus is absolutely perfect. And I think it's really nice that this book has some very clear-cut things. And as I was looking at Trick, it's like, oh, 7 to 9? Pick one of these things we have here. But if you get a 10 and plus, we have a lot of things here. Pick pick two of these things. And I think it's really cool mm-hmm. that not only for such an open world, there is a lot of nice hand-holding in the right places to be like, oh, here's some help. Like, here's some things that would happen if this were to happen. Right, definitely. And I love that there's, like, gradients of success. Yes. Which is something I like to do when I DM anyway, that, like, if you really exceed, you know, the DC on a check, then you should get more than if you barely pass it, you know? I agree with you. You know, the average result has um, an average outcome. Yeah. For like seven to nine is like, you know, that's where most of your dice are going to land. And I think that's cool. They especially write it in with uh, assessing a situation where they're like seven to nine. You get to ask one of these questions and they'll like, you know, give it to you. But like a 10 plus, mm-hmm. you actually have an advantage on the continuing questioning of this person or the acting on the answers as they call it so like they're really writing in to be sure like hey like if you get your quote-unquote higher role it means something like it's not just success either way it's there's actually right importance to it my one like caveat about this whole thing is sometimes i wish there were a bit more moves that there was a wider array of like i watched uh, like an hour or two like maybe an episode of somebody of like people playing this game and the dm kept having to ask for those like rely on your skills checks hmm. because people be like using their bending for things and he was like rightfully so that seems like relying on your skills and training so like let's do that only some of them like had a good stat in that spot you know so 
So it's weird to make it feel like some classes are better benders than others, right? If your bending often comes down to relying on your skills and training. Oh, that's you know? that's really interesting. Versus like, I found myself wishing that you could like roll an athletics check, you know? Or if you could like roll history if you were smart, you know? But But all we had was rely on your skills and training. And I feel like adventurers are always relying on their skills and training. Like, that just seems like a given. Also, let's be fair. If you're a bender playing this game and you love Avatar, what's the first thing you're going to want to do? You're just going to want to bend your way out of everything. Absolutely. You know, it's a great thing to have at your disposal. It's usable in all sorts of scenarios. Why Why wouldn't you want to do that? I completely agree, yeah. I guess, oh, wow. Well, you know what, Aaron? I'm going to tease it right now. We're going to probably have to play this. I don't know if oh, it'll go up, but we sure. got to we gotta Definitely. play this to try this all out because now I'm like, mm-hmm. all these mecha- talking about the mechanics more. I'm like, dang, now I want to, <laughs> how, how us as podcasters to be like, I love it. Let's see what works and what doesn't. Like now it's time to see what actually right? works in this game. It's like now I just want to I want to play it through and just see firsthand exactly what I like and what I don't. Totally. I love also that, you know, all the eras are open to play around in. I mean, clearly we could go before Kiyoshi, but we don't know much about Avatar Kurok. Is that who it was, the water guy? Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, that sounds so right. I'll believe Which you. also, by the way, I learned something about him that's really sad. He dies at like 33. Oh, no. Yeah, so the fact that Kiyoshi lives to like 200-something really says something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I'm not pulling yeah. that. I love it. I love that they have multiple eras you could choose to play in, especially like I don't know much about a lot of them. You know, like the Avatar Roku's time is like a whole yeah. sort of blind spot for me. Or like, what was it like with Kiyoshi? I like that they have an option for, like, the Hundred Years' War, like, before Aang is found, right? So, like, as things start to get weird, you know, like, you could play in that time and sort of see. And they do a great job of describing what some potential challenges might be um, in each of those eras. Definitely. You know, like, when you're starting to deal with, like, like, sort of a Cold War, like, rising tensions, or if you're, like in full-blown war, or if you're dealing with the aftermath of the war. Like, I think that's that's great. I completely agree. And also, I'm very curious to see how, like, canon people feel about it. Like, for example, the Hundred Years' War and the Aang era, there was no airbenders besides Aang. Aang was the only one. Right. But I wonder if, if they added this because they're specifically like, hey, make sure you do airbenders canon, like how Dungeons & Dragons is like, but anything you do is not canon. Or are people just going to be like, yeah, why not? Let's let's break the canon a little bit. Let's let's throw an airbender into uh, Aang. I guess the beginning of the Hundred Year War, there could still be airbenders, like the very beginning. That's actually just a really good question in general because I also played the Dragon Age tabletop RPG, which I think I've talked about on here before. Um which uses a 3D6 system, mm-hmm. so very similar sort of like standard distribution of dice rolls, right? Totally. And works a lot with like adding pluses or minuses to rolls as opposed to like, you know, having like just set DCs or like just using advantage or disadvantage like in 5e. But the, the big issue I had DMing in that world and being a player in that world is divorcing it from the events of the games. It, it's one of those, like, we've only ever experienced the Dragon Age world through the lens of the games. It's hard to think, for me at least, about, like, 
what kind of other stuff happens, you know, that's like not directly related to like the plot of a game like Dragon Age Inquisition or Dragon Age Origins, especially because the campaign we were starting was like a little bit pre blight, like but working towards like it was the blight. So, okay, I was constantly thinking about like, I know that this is what happens in like real life, quote unquote, as in like in the canon of the game. Versus, like, where do we fall in? And do we just put ourselves in the lens of, like, we are now, like, the protagonists and we'll fill that spot that, like, the main character would in the video game, you know? No, that's really interesting. How do you parse that? Yeah, and also, I guess, like, in this world, there is an avatar, right? Like, and Mm -hmm. almost in a weird way, the avatar is the main entity of this world so it's not like anyone in this game is going to be stepping in the shoes of the avatar right yeah they don't give an option to be like you're the avatar like that's not a thing exactly so like there's already there already is one and guess what it's not you so like sit down there's only one avatar and it's not you damn it i i so it is interesting that like these adventures that you're having you're not like the main catalyst of like you know the solution of the great problem. You are just an adventure within the world. And I think that's interesting. It's important to remember, you know, you're not like the hero of the world. You're like a regular person doing regular things, sort of. Egg. Exactly. (laughs) Egg. 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 So speaking of eggs, I don't know why I said speaking of eggs. I was trying to think of an avatar thing quickly enough. Uh, Is there an egg joke in avatar that happened? Oh, uh, so, speaking of Sokka putting these stinky eggs within the Northern Air Temple to sense the gas leaks coming up, insert something that would make sense right here. Aaron, what's an era that you really want to play as, or play in, oh, and what's a character God. you want to play as? <laughs> that was rough. That was really rough, John. I only made the first part. I figured out when eggs were used in Avatar, and then beyond that, nope. Beyond that was was all done. Exactly. All right, so, just like we talked about during our Ninja Way pod. Yeah. Um... I naturally want to play an earthbender. Totally. That would be very fun for me. Yeah. I think I'd want to go for like the hundred year war period. So not quite Avatar Aang, but like sort of right in the middle where there's like, I feel like there's a lot of open space where you could like make something your own. Totally. And I like the idea of being like an insurrectionist or a freedom fighter or sort of like working around, you know, like as the Fire Nation begins to close in and like militarize itself, like where, you know, where do you draw those lines? When do you stand and fight? You know, like what's the parsing through all of that? So, and I think I'm drawn to the guardian archetype the most. Okay. Although I, yeah, I don't know. I like the idea of playing like a really stoic, like earthbender that like has strong principles and like is like willing to throw down to protect the people that like they care about. And this is probably a good thing that like in the guardian archetype, you have a ward that you are sworn to protect and like you directly benefit this person. Right. So, but I think it's, um, it's interesting because they recommend that you make it another player character. So you're like automatically having a bond with someone at the table. I like, I feel weird about it because it feels a little bit, I think it's because it is so forced Right. That like you have to do it. It is like you cannot play this class without having one of those connections. And that makes me feel a little bit strange. I think like having a ward, like almost like your familiar question mark, like in the <laughs> game is pretty cool in that in that light rather than sorry. I don't mean to call the Guardian's ward an animal, which I kind of just did there, but I really don't mean it that way. <laughs> so 
I got like, okay, so I got two ideas for character, and the first thing that came up for me with Era to Run, in in between point, that, that three-year gap in Korra, where the airbenders come back, and they don't really talk about it in the show, I'd like to run something in that era. I think that would be really cool to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that we both picked parts that like weren't heavily discussed in the show. Exactly, because like, I, I don't know, it's weird if you do something small, but like, I don't want to do something during Sozin's Comet. You know, that kind of seems crazy to me. It's like, I don't know. That's a little too much. And also, it gives you more fun. And maybe, you know, you do run into uh, Mako or Asami at some point in that Korra era because it's open to it. But Mm -hmm. it allows the airbenders to be back. And I kind of, I don't know. I have this thing where I want my players to be able to pick as much as they want to. And I know there's always, like, a way to, like, squeeze in, like, one airbender, you know? Yeah. But they are always like, it would be nice to have them not have to feel like a rarity, you know, not to have that sort of like, you are the last airbender, you know, or one of the. Because even if you do like early hundred years war and you sneak an airbender in there, that's what the plot becomes. Because Mm -hmm. if you use your airbending, people will immediately be like, oh my God, that's an airbender. And then it will all revolve around that. And I don't want like one character to be like, so like, oh my God in it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a bit of like a main character syndrome thing. Yeah. And I will say, I, I this PDF that's come out makes me want to start reading the Kiyoshi books so I can start getting more familiar with the Kiyoshi time. Right. So I can understand what happened there. Yeah, they, Kiyoshi, um, a brutal motherfucker. Oh my, love her. Yeah. She's like, I love when it's like, but it was an accident. And she's like, in my mind, I don't see the difference. Mm-mm, she's like, I really did kill it's him. It's like, he should die. Um, Character wise, though, I have two ideas, Aaron, if you will indulge me. I will. If it were a Korra era thing. I would want to do something similar to Asami. So take the successor and do something in technology. Mm-hmm. And have this divide between like whatever industry my my family ran and then being uh, someone for the people. And almost like a capitalism versus uh, solidarity forever thing, if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. I sure do. Or I'd like to be a really angsty firebender and do the hammer and have an adversary oh, I'm yeah. trying to take down. I think that would be a fun that thing That would be to cool, do. too. Yeah. Or like, you know, I'm imagining it would be cool to be some sort of like um, idealist from the Northern Water Tribe, you know, like maybe your ideals are all about like traveling the world or like unifying your, you know, the North and South tribes that like feel so distant from each other. So, Josh, when are um, when are we running this? So that's a good question. And I promise you it's going to be on the horizon because I'm too excited. However, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm more excited to play or DM in this case, so I'm gonna have to figure that out soon. But I think I would. I I'm a go-to DM, and I love DMing, and I I am obsessed with Avatar: The Last Airbender. I've uh, similar to you, I've watched it ever since it came out. So like, I would be a hundred percent down to GM. This also strikes me as a game, and I know this is like potentially inadvisable, but you could almost I could see a case for running this with like. A collective DM, hmm. you know, because it is such a collective storytelling thing. I think it could totally be like a group decision. What do we think this check is? You know, like we're all working together and like all telling the story, Interesting. you know, so like maybe it's one of those like sort of like you pass the DMing around because someone has to have a concept of the world and the overarching plot still. Exactly. But I would like to, I would like to make a case for like, here's, you know, in this town, like we're going to hand it off to, you know, 
Rachel. And she's going to, like, decide what this town is all about and what our quest line is here. And then whenever we move on to the next thing, like, you know, then it's Josh's turn. And so then we all sort of, like, you have, like, we all have player characters, but then they sort of, like, whoever is DMing that character gets absorbed into being more of, like, a background NPC. We love Avatar here. So, Aaron, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say this to the Dungeons & Gatherers community right here. Keep your ears peeled. It's probably coming. We got a couple other things to release first, though. We've made a lot of promises. We will see what happens. Yes, because I can tell you right now that, you know, Ravnica's in the air. There's a Ravnica. Mm -hmm. There's a smell of fine Orzhov wine in the air for the Dungeons & Gatherers podcast. Ooh, definitely. Something Orzhov wine mixed with, like, seafood, I guess? Like Sharkto crab sushi? (laughs) Just a little bit. Yeah, a little sashimi. You have to hang on to episode for episode two to get that joke, but that's okay. Oh, shit. Sorry. Damn it. Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe we scratched that then. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's fine. It's a teaser for a teaser. Oh, ooh, I like that. Extra tease. Or a mm-hmm. tea. Super, I'm just a big tease. Aaron, yes. tea, as Ooh. Uncle Iroh would say. Ah, yes, good. Did you ever see the thing where Uncle Iroh invents bubble tea? It's in the comics. I don't know if we've talked about this no. on the podcast yet. But That's amazing. Zuko and Aang are in like, the Jazz of Dragon, and Iroh's like, this is my new creation. It's cooled tea with tapioca or lychee bubbles on the bottom, and then they think it's disgusting, and he's like, I am ahead of my time. He really is. I knew I liked Uncle Iroh. Uncle Iroh. Because I love Boba. Oh, I love Boba, too. It's so good. Boba tea, Boba Fett. Oh, Boba Fett. We're not on Star Wars yet. Hold hold your horses there, Aaron. Hold it. Exactly. However, I think it's only appropriate to send us off with Iroh today. So, sometimes life is like this dark tunnel. You can't always see the light at the end of the tunnel. But if you just keep moving... You'll see on your screen there is an option to like and subscribe to the Dungeons and Gatherers podcast. You amaze me every day.